I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. The tragic killing of George Floyd in Minnesota at the end of May has sparked a wave of protests in the US and around the globe. It has also sparked an important, long overdue and often difficult discussion on racism. Racism is systemic and structural and entrenched. And as two white presenters from an organisation with historical roots in the British Empire, we exist within those structures and have both knowingly and unknowingly benefited from them. We've always worked hard to have a variety of voices and interviewees on the podcast, we're conscious that we really could be doing more or better. So if you've got any suggestions for perspectives or interview ideas or people we should speak to, please let us know. You can email undercurrents at chathamhouse.org or you can direct message us on Twitter. Send us a voice note on Libsyn. Via our website, indeed. We want to use this platform to amplify as many voices as possible and to try and educate ourselves along the way. I was thinking about this, Ben. What did you get taught at school about the empire or I don't know, civil rights? Or was it was it a feature in your historical education? Yeah, I mean, I was I was trying to think about this the other day, and I think I was I was quite lucky to have teachers who didn't want to just teach the two world wars and Henry VIII's wives. So we did bizarre modules like the history of medicine, and I remember we did a module on on the American West and and various different things, like a history of protest that was really interesting. But there was definitely still very clear gaps thinking back to it now. We definitely didn't really do the empire, the British empire, in any depth at all. I'm sure that we did the abolition of slavery. And I don't think I did at all, really. you know, no. And you didn't go to school in London, did you? No, I went to school in the middle of nowhere, not too far from Bristol. So it's been interesting to see all of the events in the last week with the removal of the statue of Colston from Bristol Harbour, which I think was kind of so uplifting in a way. I know people have said that maybe the means wasn't appropriate, but the context of that is that the people of Bristol have been trying to get that thing removed for years and years, going through all these kind of petitions and speaking to the city council and trying to go through the kind of structures of civil society. It hasn't done anything. Nothing happened. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've got got a theory about statues though, Ben. Oh, yeah. This is not clear, I promise. In Russia, and actually quite a few Eastern European countries, they have parks parks to fallen monuments. Oh. So everything they tear down, they chuck in these parks. They're not like kept, like well kept or anything. But it's a, I think it's a really great solution because you're not destroying anything. You're not removing people from history, but you don't have to have slave owners in the middle of a central city square. I wonder if we can find someone to talk about that. Yeah, hopefully. But was your school very white? Yes, yeah. definitely. I mean, I can't tell you the numbers, but we're, we're really talking, I, I can think of maybe two people in my year who were not white. Wow, okay, yeah. Um, it's a very different, like talking to my friends who grew up in London, and just yeah, well, being like, around that multiculturalism the whole time. 
But I think because I, I went to school in London and my school is very, very mixed and very multicultural. And yet actually some amazing ex-pupils of my school have written a petition to old school to like actually basically challenge the way that we were taught. Decolonize the curriculum is the title. Mm-hmm. You know, just also not just history, but talking about what artists are taught at A-level art or what composers are taught or, you know, it's not just Tony Morrison and Beloved at A-level, which is a great book, don't get me wrong, but that doesn't cover everything and black history month not just being two days or three assemblies you know what i mean i just feel especially i know far too little about it so the more reading that we can do the more educating of ourselves we can do and just listening to people basically i suppose onto the podcast that we've got lined up yes <laughs> who did you speak to this week then so this week i spoke to our friend and colleague yusuf hassan from the africa program at chatham house and We were talking about the issue of race in Westminster and in UK politics more broadly. And I I won't explain too much of it now, but he gave us some really fascinating insights because prior to working at Chatham House, he was quite involved with the Labour Party and has quite a lot of experience of being around this culture that is quite problematic in UK politics. So more on that soon. You don't often get a a man's perspective of Westminster on that. That sounds really interesting. It often comes from a gender yeah, of course. Background, which is mm-hmm. obviously hugely important, but different. But who did you speak to, Agnes? I spoke to another one of our colleagues, Callum Inverarity, who is a research analyst and coordinator at the International Security Programme here at Chatham House, about a piece that he wrote for the world today, this issue, called Don't Blame the Scientists. Basically looking at how the scientists and politicians have been working together or not over COVID mm. and whether they've taken the blame for when politicians haven't done enough. But yeah, let's have a listen. Yeah, let's have a listen. Today, I'm really delighted to be joined by my colleague, Yusuf Hassan. Yusuf is the Parliamentary Media and Outreach Officer with the Africa Programme at Chatham House, and he also works with me on the Common Futures Conversations project. Yusuf, thanks so much for joining us today. Truly a pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for inviting me on. So we thought it would be interesting to have a bit of a conversation about inclusion and representation in UK politics. So this is going to be quite a UK centric interview, but I think that so much of what's been going on in the world in recent weeks has been about accepting that racism and associated problems are not something that just afflicts the US, however it's played out in the media and that actually everywhere else could also reflect on the things that it's not doing well. So we're going to be focusing quite a lot on Westminster today and and you have quite a long experience in different ways with the machinations of Westminster politics. Could you maybe tell us a bit about your background in that area so far? Yeah, no problem whatsoever. Once again, thanks, Ben. And I have been very lucky from the very beginning of my career to to be engaging in politics and be engaging with, as best I can, advocacy around representation and inclusion and engaging ethnic minorities within politics in general. I was lucky whilst I was still at 
university to engage with politicians initially around Muslim students and, and their engagement within politics. Following that, I started a job working on lobbying for the inclusion of ethnic minorities within politics and for, for parties and for politicians to take their perspectives very seriously and actually engage with them on a much more substantial level instead of the, as it currently seems, a transactional model which is based around you vote for us, we'll give you these things instead of actually understanding what the needs of these communities are. I was lucky to testify in Parliament on the Joint Committee on Human Rights discussing the government's countering violent extremism policy. And following that, I, I worked specifically on a project aimed at engaging Muslims with the Labour Party across the UK. And now, of course, I find myself at Chatham House as the Parliamentary Media and Outreach Officer, with my aim being to advocate to policymakers and politicians on Africa policy and, and utilising the incredible work that we have at the programme to change some of the positions that they may hold and actually inform them of how Africa is a continent and a region that Britain must have stronger ties with and Britain must engage much more with. But And, and throughout that time, it's meant that I've spent far too much of my uh, relatively young life in the Westminster scene and, and have, hang, have engaged with uh, parliamentarians, with parliamentary staff and with civil servants. Mm. And often those encounters have been positive and have allowed me to learn and them to learn. But on occasion, they've also been there's been occasions where things haven't particularly gone well. And I think that's always inspired me to, to try and make Westminster a more representative place, a place where people like myself and people who hopefully will come after me will be able to do the work that they do without any barriers. But we have a journey to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. I remember in the aftermath of the most recent election in the UK in December 2019, there were a lot of media stories about how the newly elected parliament was the most diverse UK parliament in history and uh, a lot of celebration of that. But I think when you dig down into the numbers, the story is a little bit more complicated than that. Do you have a, a perspective on whether we should be celebrating where we are now? I think you're exactly right. I think in, in the immediate aftermath of the election, there was huge statements made and congratulations sent to all the political parties about the fact that ethnic diversity in politics and in public life had substantially increased following this election. But I can, I can give you the stats. We're a, we're, a, we're a research institute, so it'd be ridiculous if I didn't give you the stats, right? So if we're looking at, from a baseline figure, 13.8% of the UK population come from non-white or minority ethnic backgrounds. At current, just under 10% of the membership of the House of Commons were from minority ethnic backgrounds. And of course, it's a huge leap forward if we're comparing ourselves to 1987, where you only had four. But if we're looking at it merely from a mathematical data focused point of view, there's still some way to go. There's still some way to go for, for Parliament to be completely representative of, of course, uh, people from ethnic minorities. But also, I think I really want to make this big caveat, which is the mistake that people make often is representation solely isn't about numbers. It's about mm. experiences, right? And how many of these ethnic minorities maybe come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds like the rest of the people that may come from the same ethnic minorities, right? I think the experience of, of a young black lady who went to Eton will, will differ to the experience and actually to someone, for example, uh, maybe a young white lad from Tower Hamlets or from, from the Isle of Dogs. And the experience of the, of the young white lad may actually resonate more with other ethnic minorities that, mm. that may surround him, right? And I think that's exactly the, I think the mistake that's often made around diversity is to, is to see it through one frame. And I think it's a, it's a multifaceted issue, it's an intersectional issue as the word is. And diversity must also be understood in that way. 
I think that's such an interesting point. I suppose, though, just thinking about the experience of people from ethnic minority backgrounds, do you think that there are particular barriers to entry into UK politics? What are the kind of structures in place that are preventing these numbers becoming more representative of the population? Incredible question. and I'll try and give a solution or an answer to match. I think to break it down, as someone who, of course, has been involved in the political process, I never run for public office and I have no intention to at current. But the key things I would say are, I think a huge element is financial. And I don't necessarily mean it from a simplistic point of view, in the sense that I, for example, if I choose to engage with a political party, if I come from a low socioeconomic background, that means I'm choosing to use that time instead of, let's say, studying and overcoming the, the, the structural educational attainment gap that exists for people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. I'm choosing maybe not to engage in part-time work. And if I come from a family that requires a level of financial support, that's going to be difficult for me, right? It's going to be difficult for me to, to be able to weigh that up. If I am someone, for example, who has caring responsibilities and have to, has to look after siblings or relatives, if I'm a disabled person, like costs associated with me engaging in the activities that allow you to develop the name for yourself, as they would say, is, is going to be quite difficult. Like I'm not able to travel across the country and canvas as generally is, is the norm to establishing that pathway into politics. I may not have, and even if I come from a low socioeconomic background, I, there are still people of course, who, who succeed and other factors like, for example, trade union membership, amongst other things, maybe their parents or their grandparents were trade unionists and they have a strong political will within their, their homes and, a, and an understanding that exists within that allows them to engage in politics. Others aren't as lucky. Some may come from families where you have immigrants and individuals who haven't been as lucky to engage in the political process. Therefore, there are many barriers in, in that sense. I think there's also the, the sad reality that when you think of an MP, sadly, the idea that comes into your head isn't often a bearded, young, black man from, from South London. Sadly, it mm. may come from someone who looks like they're fresh out of Oxford University who, had who was lucky enough to go to Eton, right? Sadly, the archetype or the perfect candidate isn't often associated with someone from a diverse background. And I think that's a problem. And that's one about perception and changing perceptions. But you can only change perception once people begin to see something different in front of their eyes. And I think that's why representation is so important. It's about providing people with the understanding that they themselves, regardless of what background that they come from, regardless of all the difficulties and structures that are placed in front of them, not allowing them to succeed, that they're able to see themselves in someone else. And great, we're seeing huge amounts of change with regards to representation, but, but it's not enough. We, we, need to, we need to do better. We need to do more. And now our political parties, the, the structures that exist, parliament itself needs to become much more of an of a accommodating place, because I think retention is another part, but I'll end there for now. It's so interesting that that last point you were talking about on perception. Yeah. I wonder really who is responsible for driving forward that change. I mean, I was just reflecting there as you were speaking about the recent leadership campaign at the election that the Labour Party ran at the start of this year and, and how a lot of, say, I'm not making a statement here about any particular mm. candidate that I supported or didn't support or in terms of policy platforms or anything like that, but a lot of the discussion in the media was very much talking about Sakir Starmer, who is now the leader of the Labour Party mm. for our international audience, and how he looked prime ministerial. Mm. And a lot of it was to do with this kind of presentation of a very articulate white guy in a suit who looked the part in a way that his predecessor didn't and maybe some of the other candidates didn't. I just wonder whether you, you have a view on 
who is responsible for shaping these perceptions and, and whether the media actually needs to, to have a think about that as well as the politicians. No, I completely agree. I think it's a societal shift, right? I think exactly mm-hmm. the point you made is particularly interesting for me because that's the reality of what the situation that we're in is, right? Which is what does being presidential look like, right? What does being prime ministerial look like? What does yeah. being an MP look like? What does being a mayor look like, right? Generally, we're socialised in a society that gives us the, the understanding that these are all roles that must be fulfilled by people that fit within them. And what does fit even mean, right? Yeah. Is someone is someone going to view someone like, for example, Diane Abbott, Kemi Badenoch, amongst other MPs, who of course are, are black women, would they be seen as prime ministerial? Would they be seen as presidential? When they make mistakes, are they judged harsher? Mm. Let's be frank with ourselves, right? The answer to that question is yes. And my biggest difficulty is being able to communicate that to people, right? And I think what, where are they judged harsher? Yes, they're judged harsher by the public, but where do the public get their information from? They get their information from the commentariat. And the commentariat have a responsibility to recognize mm-hmm. that there may be internalized elements as to why their perceptions and why they're writing and why their coverage of certain politicians will be a certain way, right? And like from ridiculous things that were said about David Lammy to some of the awful, even cartoons amongst other things written about and shown about conservative MPs, right? And I think it's like, it seems when it comes to covering ethnic minority politicians, there's a lack of willingness for introspection once something is done, right? I think if we look at just examples from the way Sajid Javid was treated and some of the some of the things that were said about him, the way Preeti Patel was treated, the way, like I mentioned, Diane Abbott was treated. And the fact that I can mention so many examples, I hope gives you a gives you an understanding as to why this and these are people who have reached the highest forms of office, right? We're talking about a chancellor, we're talking about the home secretary, right? Like it's mm-hmm. these aren't normal things that we should be expecting for people who had reached these positions. And also I think there's another element to it, which is the simple mistakes that only tend to happen to an ethnic minority MPs, right? The fact that you can have the BBC in the space of two weeks and even the Evening Standard as well, of course, they're not, they're not free from this, somehow put up the wrong n- captions for names for, for MPs just because the said MP has changed her hair and the way it looks so that she <sighs> resembles someone else, right? And, and the same, for example, when, when different pictures are used of different people altogether, and I think I think if these if this is happening to MPs, and these are people who, of course, are, are amongst the highest profile figures in our society, what happens and what impression does that give to the young person thinking about engaging in politics? I can reach these levels, but I still won't be treated with basic levels of respect so that people know what my name is or know what I look like, right? <laughs> and I think mm. that's a huge, huge element of it, I think. And that's really what affects re- retention, which is, I think, such an important element of this, that you can, that you can increase representation, but if the, if the structures in place are not reformed or, or changed altogether to ensure that these places are accommodating for people that come from ethnic minority backgrounds or come from any background altogether that is diverse, you're going to have problems. You're going to feel as if your, your place isn't in these institutions. Absolutely. And, and just on the retention question that you mentioned, I mean, obviously, yeah, we, we spoke about these barriers to even entering politics in the first place. And so much is to do with representation in that sense. But I wonder if you had any more that you wanted to say about the barriers to continuing and mm-hmm. to pursuing these sorts of political careers. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation, not just in terms of race, but also in terms of gender and class discrimination that have revolved around a kind of lack of proper HR in mm. Westminster and the fact that there are fewer structures to kind of protect junior staff 
in these careers. I just wondered if you had any perspectives on this major problem of, of retaining people so that mm. ultimately they do reach the point that the likes of Sajid Javid or Diane Abbott did. I think it's uh, once again a, a huge question and I can only relay the messages that I've been lucky enough to hear from friends of mine, of course, and have been being in the environment myself. Mm. is that we see a cultural issue, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not necessarily just about blatant instances of failings or racism that may experience, but it's also the understanding that exists within the institution, right? And the institutional knowledge that exists. Mm-hmm. Whether it be the fact that, of course, we love parliament for its pompous and its, and its sometimes a ridiculous nature, most of us would agree. But there are, there are cliques, right? There are, there are established norms that people like myself and, and others that come from diverse backgrounds just won't fit into. There's an assumption that you're different and like the othering of these individuals will continue from the very beginning of their engagement with these spaces, right? And I think we've always spoken about, and I think there's all covered in the media quite a bit, of course, the a culture of bullying within Westminster. And, and the thick of it isn't the first thing that taught us that, right? The Malcolm Tuckerite tirades of abuse aren't the only manifestations of this, right? And of course, that's, a, that's, that's occurred on occasion. But it's it's a message in your ear or the constant policing of your presence within these spaces, right? It's like, oh, show me your past. Why are you here? Who are you? A question that would never be asked to someone else. And and of course, this this is manifested through like diversity training being rolled out. But the problem is, and I think it's something that is quite clear from, from, from my understanding, having operated in these spaces, getting people to understand that they're wrong, especially when they're given a level or a, or a responsibility like that of a parliamentarian is difficult, right? I think people need to recognise that education is a lifelong journey, right? And the difficulty in understanding and having that introspection that, you know what, I have made mistakes. I am not faultless, right? I have learnings I have to overcome, whether it be this internalised sexism or this internalised racism that I have been taught through generations of socialization it needs to be really, really drilled into people's minds, right? And great work is being done. In, in parliament by different organizations operation black voters one parley reach is another and and they themselves released a report looking at looking at staff of course and their experience within within parliamentary grounds and the difficulty that they face and the fact that they were more likely to be asked about their past more than anyone that they were seen to be much more able to 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 be questioned about their surroundings amongst other things and I think the retention question has always got to be framed from the perspective that the mistake isn't on the individuals trying to change the institution, it's on the institution themselves, right? The onus to change mustn't be on the individuals as it currently is. You change and you, you accept the reality for what it is as a person from a diverse background within parliament instead of engaging in this space as yourself and hoping that the, the space around you changes, right? And that's regardless of what diverse background you come from, right? There are certain responsibilities upon our institutions, especially public ones, that have a responsibility to represent all of us and to be inclusive of all of us. And that's where I feel retention can only be improved once people begin to listen and learn and be willing to change and shift. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the sad reality of it is I, I myself have had one of these difficult experiences in which I was there representing my institution, Chatham House, and I was asked in, in the middle of a meeting, so where are you from? And of course, the question wasn't about where I worked. It was about where my parents hail from, right? I'm a British citizen. I, I, I was born, brought up here. I have an accent like everyone else, right? The question was about where was I from? And of course, I replied Chatham House and then laughter ensued. But the fact that I had the strength in that situation to do that 
is not representative of the fact that something like that should never have happened. Yeah. And it's unfair to to people who may not necessarily have the willingness to constantly counter the racism or the offhanded comments for them to feel as if they are stuck because I'm very lucky that that I'm able to do that following my experience but if I was a new staff member if I was someone who who hadn't really developed the thick skin that you do have to have when you're when you're in these spaces what would have happened to me I I probably would have been disgusted and left and this is the problem it's the cultural change that needs to happen in terms of tangible changes that have to be made i mean obviously it shouldn't fall to you to just come up with the whole solution to this but i would like to think about ways that this situation could be improved and i mean you've spoken about how it shouldn't be for the ethnic minority individuals to desensitize to these statements and and behaviors Mm -hmm. and actually it should be for the institution to change so what do you think briefly that change should look like I think that change has to come in even before you've begun or you've you're begun your journey towards politics, right? And that's a, that's, a, that's a discussion towards political parties being much more willing and active in their pursuit of engaging much larger, larger ethnic minority audiences. And that's by facilitating instances where ethnic minorities are, are able to get selected in the first place and get to parliament. And Operation Black Vote, by, run by Lord Woolley, have advocated for all BAME shortlists, uh, taking from the example of, of course, all, all women shortlists that began to become a norm after 2010. Yeah. And that's an example of structural change on the way to Parliament. Once we get to Parliament, I think introspection and training from, from within the, the fields that parliamentarians engage with, and that's, of course, the media and the commentary understanding they have a responsibility to really be careful about how they frame individuals and understand whether that comes from an ingrained internalized perspective of theirs that they need to, of course, learn to, to, to move away from and actually just unlearn the, the very uh, racism that they may be exhibiting. Of course, that responsibility also lies within the institution itself and ensuring that staff members and, and, and civil servants, of course, as they all are, recognize the responsibility that they have to, to learn as well. And everyone, no one is ever going to gonna admit that they treat people differently based on their race. But we all know that there's this, that's a reality of the way people are socialized. Therefore, being willing to invest much more in training, in education, in listening, right? And just listening to, to minority ethnic MPs. It's crazy that the ITV itself reported in February about how of the MPs that they all reached out to, the ethnic minority MPs that they reached out to, over half said that they had faced racism on parliamentary grounds, right? Wow. That's yeah. crazy. Like, I think that it's, it's a little bit ridiculous on parliamentary grounds. Therefore, this is spaces that they all exist within. It's a, it's a, and of that, 92% believe that their ethnicity made it harder for them to enter parliament. 83% said it made their jobs more difficult. And 83% had also, also said that they'd experienced racism from the public. Mm. And it's upsetting for me to, to, to hear these things because, and this is across parties, right? This isn't just necessarily one party. It's all the parties. Every single one of them needs to learn. And independence, of course, fall within that as well. I think there needs to be a cultural shift. There needs to be an understanding. We, of course, are not operating in a vacuum. There's a heightened discussion around race, around diversity right now. Mm. And in this moment, it is time for institutions like that of parliament and those that are within it to take the lead, to take to to be honest about things. And I think the constant rebuttal by most organisations and institutions when it comes to addressing these issues or when isolated incidents in quotation marks occur is that we are listening, we are learning. Listening and learning without action is useless. <laughs> like it's just, just, let's be very honest about it. It's useless. Like yep. it, it doesn't make the lives of these parliamentarians, of these staffers, of these 
of the civil servants themselves, because of course they fall within the bracket of individuals who are going to experience said discrimination. Mm. It doesn't benefit them, right? Our responsibilities as human beings have to be to make that of our fellow human being better. And as people who are there representing the wishes of the British public, representing the British public, your responsibility is to be reflective of the British public, to be reflective of every single member of the British public and not just the ones that you represent. And if you come from a constituency where you have no ethnic minorities, then great, you're meeting an MP that has maybe in a constituency which has over 50% and you can engage and discuss and bring knowledge together because I think the biggest mistake when it comes to discussions around representation have always been the argument that representation isn't a net positive from a political understanding perspective in the sense that, for example, I myself, where I come from, my experiences mm. may not relate to you directly, but you can learn from them and, and actually implement better policy for everyone. And there are, there are parallels between groups that are on similar lower socioeconomic levels, on similar levels with regards to disability, with similar levels with regards to child poverty or ethnic minority discrimination. We can all work together on this. We can all learn from each other. We can all see the problems that we have and create solutions that better everyone instead of, instead of representing solely the people that you're there from and not to digress from the point that I was making earlier. But life is about learning. Life is about education, but education must lead to action. As you mentioned, we're speaking at a time where these issues are very much at the forefront of the media's mind and I hope at the mind of a lot of the public, at least judging by the by the demonstrations that have been going on all over the world. I just wondered whether, given your experience of working on this over several years, whether you feel that this moment is different to previous iterations of this debate. Do you think that this feels like an opportunity where real change could take place? Well, thank you, Ben, for that question. And my hope is, yes, that we are coming towards, I think we've reached a point where frustration has boiled over, right? And and the reasoning being maybe can be linked to the fact that everyone's stuck at home and has the ability to, to really reflect upon what's going on and reflect upon the historical nature of all of this. We've seen unprecedented protests all across the globe, on our side of the pond and, of course, the other. And the reasoning behind it is because people are just angry. People are no longer willing for the actions that take place at the hands of the state and other actors as well, because we can't, I don't think we can merely make this an issue solely about the state, in the sense that people that come from diverse backgrounds, in this case, black people, will no longer be willing to be subjected to this level of brutality in, in a structural and actually in a very real world sense in the case of George Floyd and of course condolences to his family there is such an anger that people have have been willing to risk their lives and we don't even mean this in an exaggerative sense by people who are more likely to of course be affected by COVID-19 willing to pour out onto the streets and be willing to demonstrate and and express their anger and that is because I think the point of no return I hope has been reached because people are willing to understand that this anger must lead to change, right? And I think the response has been fascinating, especially from corporations and institutions, right? There were corporations and institutions just years ago, I would not have imagined had any understanding around racial diversity from toy companies to coffee shops to, to, to of course, every single football club, right? There is a willingness to engage on this issue, at least performatively. But the performative must turn to the substantive now. I think the, the, the ask from everyone is that anyone that has taken the opportunity and this opportunity to make a stand or to release a statement, to follow up with internal measures that make the lives of people 
in their orbit or within in their in their networks better and the people that come from of course black backgrounds but that extends to everyone right at the end of the day the discussion around black lives matters is not exclusionary actually it's more about inclusion it's about understanding that these are issues that affect black people predominantly and once we are able to begin the conversation we're able to begin the conversations about other ethnic minority groups in a much more substantive way because this is a historical a historical and I don't like to use the term fight right it's a historical fight to, for justice and a historical fight that requires everyone to to be understanding and to to be willing to learn and to be willing to to take action in a personal sense and of course like uh, it's a, it's a very charm house way to end things but you act local and you think global right it's the aim is to change the periphery around ourselves and hopefully when everyone begins to do that we see change amongst everyone's lives and that is the hope from from myself as a the relatively young black man and 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 I can see and I'm very lucky to see people who don't necessarily come from my background also exhibiting the same willingness for that to happen as well absolutely well let's hope that this can continue yusuf hassan thank you so much for joining us today thanks so much man speaking to my colleague, Callum Inverarity, Research Analyst and Coordinator at the International Security Programme here at Chatham House. Hello, Callum. Hi, Agnes. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you? I'm quite well, thanks. Thank you for having me along. It's uh, going to be a nice experience. Well, hopefully we'll see. Um, (laughs) We're here to talk about a piece that you wrote for the latest issue of The World Today called Don't Blame the Scientists. Politicians should lead, not hide behind experts. So what are you talking about in this piece? Well, I think that everyone's probably become maybe a bit too familiar with the term led by the science or led by the best science, which has been something which the UK government has been continuously referring to throughout the course of the pandemic. And essentially, my piece looks into this and it peels it back a little bit and analyzes or gets into a bit of a conversation on what this actually means and why are they saying this and what are their motivations and what impacts does this also have? Because I was going to ask you, COVID-19 has thrust apolitical figures, you know, like scientists, into the public sphere. You know, they are sat next to politicians. I mean, how do you think that's impacted... The scientific community like, do you think that's a good thing or or do you think that's been problematic so um, as i give a brief mention to in the piece is uh, that this isn't something new it sort of ebbs and flows really where there seems to be these transgressions uh, between the boundary of policy making and uh, the scientific community because the two depend on each other really for democratic governance and the kind of policy making that we know and understand these days but there's a bit of a mutual respect for each other that they try and maintain but then there is flashpoints there are moments where this flares up and then it leads to some tensions arising as you'll see from the current situation then there has been a bit of a backlash where some within the scientific community have taken issue with the government trying to run their narrative that they have their science which is the best science, to use a Trumpian term, or uh, the science, which essentially has been blocking out other contributors from the scientific community. And it's been narrowing the discussion which has actually been taking place, which has had impacts 
on the policies which have been chosen. You, you say this isn't necessarily new, but by and large, the scientific community has always, of course, like you say, advised governments, but they've always been in the background. They haven't been in the public eye in the same way, expected to answer questions or you know, be a, be a sort of front in that sense. Why, why do you think that's happened? And do you think that's been useful, damaging? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I could go on about this for ages. I've done a lot of reading into this uh, from back in my days as a student and continued it onwards. But then it all comes back to uh, this field of science, technology and society, where I think it's run about towards the middle of the 20th century kind of in the wake of the development of the atomic bomb, then it really raised or brought, I guess, to the forefront the questions of the impacts that science actually has on humanity, whether it's in terms of the decisions to uh, use these weapons or the capacity which is provided through this scientific research to enable these things. So there's been a whole load of questions in the past on this as to how responsible scientists should be for the science that they come up with and the decisions that are made based on that or the actions that are taken. So this is something which has been going on for decades now and throughout this period of time as well. We've been finding ourselves in a more mediatized environment where we have greater access to information, whether it's through TV, podcasts, shout out to Undercurrents there, or using the internet. And essentially, we have a kind of democratization of information and the ways in which we can access it as well. So then people are able to scrutinize government's decisions that they make, and also the reasoning behind it as well. So then when it's being pointed out exactly where this decision has been made from or what has been relied on in order to inform it, then that gives the public greater opportunities to then scrutinize it. But then also at the same time, it can also then push them to find alternative sources, particularly if there's a decision that's made and the public don't agree with it, then that can often push them to then scrutinize and criticize the government's decision making and how they actually decide on who would provide them with their scientific expertise or advice. One could be cynical and argue that politicians have always picked and chosen which bits of advice they take and how they use it. But you say in your piece, I'm going to quote you here, at a time of heightened emotions when the public are in need of competent, reliable and transparent guidance, in delegating this responsibility so imprecisely to the scientific community, the government may have elevated those within it to a precarious position within the public's perception. My question here is, if you don't delegate public reassurance sort of at a time like this, which is you know unprecedented, scary, to the scientific community, who else is there? In a pandemic, personally, I want to be told what's going on by the chief scientific advisor, not necessarily the Minister for Health or the Prime Minister. Yeah, no, definitely. And that is entirely logical and sensible in such a time as the present. It's a difficult one, really, because we obviously have to appreciate that these decisions are being made very quickly. And we can't have huge, long, open debates and everything, whereas we might normally do if it's a sort of slower issue, not something as immediate as the current circumstances. So it does kind of then lead to certain corners being cut, but then it's essentially what has happened in the instance of the UK is that 
while the government has deferred to the scientists, they haven't really been particularly open about it. And then that's been a little bit problematic where there's just been a bit of confusion surrounding it. And at the same time, rather than open up and try and be a little bit more transparent when they have been questioned on this, then they've tried to shut down any debate or counter narratives on this as quickly as possible, which has then led to a little bit of mistrust or just uneasiness, where people are like wondering whether there's any way in which they can receive a bit of greater assurance from the government. But it seems as though that avenue for dialogue has been relatively cut off. Because in your piece, you sort of go on to talk about basically the risk for the scientific community of reputational damage and distrust from the general public. But the chief scientific advisor has put in, has proposed a sort of vague solution to this. What's he proposed and who is he? Yeah, so this is actually the former uh, chief scientific advisor to the government, uh, Sir David King. Sir David King has set up what he calls the Independent Sage Group, which has been a bit of a open sourced pool of experts that isn't confined to just those that have been handpicked or usually relied upon by the government. So this essentially opens up the discussion and you'll have other people feeding into it. And it doesn't seem quite as hierarchical. And also at the same time, it doesn't have that immediate proximity to the government, which has seemed to kind of muddy the independence of the original SAGE group at the moment. So it's an interesting one. Who's making up the new group? Yeah, so it's a whole host of different academic experts and epidemiologists, and it's essentially a coalescing of, I guess, slightly disenfranchised experts who have found that while they are leaders in their fields or in a particular area of their said field, then they haven't maybe been referred to because governments will rely on their pool of experts. And particularly in emergencies, then maybe there won't be the time to then find out and verify who's actually the the person that's leading on a certain study at the time when a decision needs to be made. So this is essentially opening up the dialogue and making it more of a kind of crowd-funded or crowd-contributed pool of expertise, which provides just a counterweight to that which is being already provided in maybe more closed-off terms to the government. Scientific study and academia as well is often very black and white, whereas politics is very grey. Do you think it's just that it's difficult for these two worlds to mesh and scientists don't currently have the best PR, really? It's a good question. And yeah, maybe this mixing of colour palettes doesn't necessarily work. But this is something which, unfortunately, is the reality in which we're working with. So then I think that what you're mentioning there, it does bring up a good point. And this is something that needs to be addressed. And it's an area for further study, trying to work out what is the best way to communicate the science. It's a whole field itself as well. And trying to find a way in which we actually communicate these findings from studies, from research, and how we actually make them both relatable and digestible and understandable as well. And I think I've seen in the past that trying to stick to some of these more rationalistic approach to the creation of science, where, as I mentioned before, it was originally that scientists, you do the science, politicians or uh, ministers, you make the decisions based on that science, and that's it. 
that that's changing a lot and the, there are it, it's quite personality dependent some want to actually take on board the societal implications and really think about the ethics and everything behind how their scientific research might actually impact on people in the street but then others they're kind of a bit uneasy with that. It'll depend on the scientific research that they're actually doing, that maybe they won't necessarily feel this is my responsibility to then justify this decision or to explain to the public based on this evidence, then we think that there's a, this likelihood that this is going to happen. I'd previously done some research on a fracking policy in the UK, and I was looking and I, I was speaking to the politicians involved in uh, the decisions that were made, and also speaking to the people that were being impacted by these decisions. And it was really interesting to speak with the local residents in the west of England, where they were testing out or doing the first exploratory drilling. And they really felt as though they were living in a test environment, that they were almost guinea pigs. And they were finding it difficult for when the government would say, oh, well, uh, or there was a moratorium which took place and a report was commissioned onto how secure fracking was as a process. And it looked at a whole number of different factors. And quite a lot of this was then reduced down by the scientific experts who'd actually put this together into realms of probability and uncertainty. But then that's what then had to be communicated and digested and acted upon by the government, who then kept on saying, oh, well, with this degree of certainty, we think that it should be all right. But then it's the kind of case if someone says to you, oh, we're about 80% sure that nothing's going to happen, it's going to be fine, then you're still living with that 20%. And there will be others that aren't. And it's just like, well, what's the decision process behind you thinking that that's an acceptable amount of risk to then place on me? So it all comes down to how science is actually dealt with in the public and how that's communicated and how it's understood. And to play devil's advocate, one could argue that the whole point of scientific research is to hopefully change policy and change the way the public deal with stuff. Do scientists need to maybe just become more comfortable with the idea that their findings are going to be you know, used in ways that they don't have full control of, but that's still the point of them doing this research? Yeah, no, I think it's part of this continuing discussion and it's something that we're developing whether we want to or not, really. And it's just having a greater acceptance that this is how it's used. And, well, democracy isn't static and the processes change, circumstances change, and you adapt to that. So this is what we've seen over the past half century really where this has really become or gained a lot more traction and it's something which is definitely still ongoing and it, it could be uh, the case that there's more of this hybridization of uh, scientific experts that also kind of match up in communicating and policy which is often what we see in the think tank world actually so there are some of these bridges which kind of try and connect the two then that doesn't mean that there's not going to be these small or I guess in the current situation more sizable uh, flare-ups of this kind of boundary reinforcement or uh, throwbacks to the rigidity of them and hoping that no I'm dealing with the science you can deal with the policy there will be 
certain people with those kind of attitudes just as there will be people that are a lot more vocal and want to stand up and make sure that there's greater consideration of the application of scientific expertise. Callum, you've been great. Listeners can read Callum's piece at chathamhouse.org. Don't blame the scientists. It's excellent. I've got a final question for you. We've seen a lot of scientific advisors appearing on television and briefing us. Who's your favourite? Oh, that's a difficult one. Can you put me on the spot like that, Agnes? I don't know. Like, everyone's got a soft spot for witty. Obviously witty. No question. Yeah, I hate to just go go with the majority, but I think that it's got to be witty. He's just been an absolute trooper. He's almost replaced my love of Mark Carney. <laughs> I've got to say, though, I, I can't help but feel a bit of sympathy for him as well in the public broadcasts, you know, in between the TV shows. He just doesn't look like he wants to be there. But uh, who can blame him, really? He didn't go into this to do this, <laughs> basically. Exactly. Well, Callum, thank you so much. That was really interesting. And more to follow. Thanks for having me, Agnes. Well, that was a very interesting interview once more, Agnes, as ever. Well, thank you to much, Callum. Yeah, thank you to Callum um, <laughs> for his strident defence of the science. But that's all we're bringing you this week. We'll be back next week, of course, with, with some more interviews. In the show notes for this episode, we've left some links to some of the resources that we've been reading in the last couple of weeks around this massive discussion about, about racism and structural racism. We hope you find those as useful as we've found them. And if you've got any, any other suggestions that you'd like to share, please do, do tweet us. Tweet uh, at Agnes Frim or at Ben R. Horton and... Tell us what we should be what we should be reading. We we are open to being told what we don't know, basically. But I would just like to flag the New York Times link um, of an anti-racist reading list by um, Ibram X. Kendi. It's really great. Um, in case anybody wants a one-stop link. But yeah. In the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Mm-hmm.